The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. We are going to begin with Scientology today. Now, we, we've, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism. Both are more or less evangelistic cults. In other words, you are likely at some point in your life to encounter an advocate on your doorstep, maybe, of that particular cult. It's highly unlikely that Tom Cruise is going to show up one day knocking on your door and wanting to talk to you about Scientology. At least, I I doubt it. Yet, at the same time, if you spend any time in California and you walk down the street, you are probably going to cross paths with a, someone is a, who is a practicer of Scientology, or you're going to pass by a Scientology center. And it may not be a rapidly growing, it's, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes with cults, they, they, you know, they, they tend to like to tell you they're bigger than what they are. Um, sometimes, and so it's hard to tell what the exact numbers are of Scientologists, but um, what we can see is obviously that this is an idea that is widely circula- circulated on TVs and in media, in various uh, circles. And I think, at least if you're like me, I've always known about Scientology kind of out here, that it's this sort of kooky, weird sort of belief that, uh, that I'm not sure what they all teach and things like that, but it's very strange and it's very different and... I don't really know too much about it, but it's a lot of celebrities and things like that, and I'm just going to stay away from it. Um, But I I think what is interesting is when we start to unpack it, you'll actually see that it's got a lot of similarities to some other things that you do know. And uh, it's it's actually just rebranded. Because I think one theme that I want want us to see over the course of this study is that the Schemes of the devil are the same as they've always been. They're, they're not new. And the more you can kind of see it that way, the more you realize that I don't really have to know all the ins and outs of every world religion or cult. I simply need to know Christian doctrine and where it applies to the person. And so uh, hopefully we're going to do that today. So we'll start with just a, just a brief little history and, and I'll also warn you, we're not going to go into every in and out of Scientology. There's a whole, it gets a lot weirder, okay? Let's just say it that way. Uh, it does. But we're not going to go into that. We're going to stick to the, the high points, at least. Um, so the founder of Scientology is a man by the name of Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, or affectionately known to most of the world as L. Ron Hubbard, And he was a popular science fiction writer. You can't make this stuff up, all right? He was a science fiction writer of the 30s and 40s. And in May of 1950, Hubbard released a book called Dianetics, A Modern Science of Mental Health. And it has become entry-level reading for Scientologists. So pretty much any person that you ever were to come across who would be in Scientology, has read Dianetics. That's sort of entry-level reading. That is uh, requirement number one. You've got to read this. All right. 
Hubbard's overnight success with Dianetics gave him this new career in basically writing self-help uh, and religious books. So Scientology, if we can put it into a category initially, it is a convergence of self-help and religion. It's sort of a, it's, it's sort of a, a nexus point for self-help and religion. So again, we're finding a very similar theme as we've seen with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses that I want you to, the, the lens that I want you to look through when you see people that are trapped in these, well, I don't say trapped, but that are participating in these cults or religious ideologies, is that they, their attempt is to save themselves. Every single one of the uh, cults or religions that we talk about will be effectively self-help books repackaged. Okay, That is, that is what they are. They will advocate for your salvation coming through good works. Always. Every time. 100% of the time. Even when you dig down to other religions, Judaism, Islam, and major religions like Judaism and Islam, other religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, and all the, all the like, they will all be advocates of basically self-help. You can save yourself. And Scientology is probably a, a, the, the clearest picture of that because it, it really is unashamed of that. It doesn't advocate for anything else than that. But that you can basically save yourself is essentially the picture. Uh, so it's this kind of nexus point of self-help and religion. And so his first book in Scientology is published uh, in 1950, that is after Dianetics, 1951. And the Church of Scientology was incorporated in New Jersey December 22nd, uh, 1953. An early Christmas present to the world, I suppose. Something like that. So uh, Hubbard then died of a stroke on January 24th, 1986. And here's what you'll also see, which is the height of irony in a lot of these cases, is that the advocates for self-help that start these religious cults, there's something that all of them, in the end, do. They all die, right? And let's be honest, if we're really taking the religious explanations that they give to their logical ends, then that presents a problem. As much as people don't want to admit that, you can save yourself in what real way? Can you actually save yourself if death is inevitable? So, L. Ron Hubbard dies, and uh, there is, at his funeral, sort of a refusal to believe that such a great science of the mind master could die in the hor horrific way as a stroke. Uh, the word dead or died is never used at his, in his eulogy. Instead, the new president of Scientology, David Miscavige, announced that L. Ron Hubbard decisively discarded the body to move on to the next level of research outside of his body. Now, do you hear that language, discarded the body? What does that say about the body, first of all, I'm going to ask? Tell me.
Yeah, the, so Doug says there, there, it kind of says that there is a, um, kind of like Greek philosophy would say, that the body is bad, the soul, the spirit is good. Um, so to discard the body would be a, that he's promoted, essentially. The body limits you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, that was my next question is, does this sound like repackaged, rebranded thoughts from a bygone era. And it is, in fact. There are many overlaps between Scientology and what the Gnostics believed in Paul's day and age. Again, the schemes of the devil trying to rebrand the gospel as something else are the same they've always been. If you just look deeply enough, you'll find it. It's there, all right? It's all advocating the same stuff. And so David Miscavige at the eulogy of L. Ron Hubbard says he discarded the body. His body's gone. His spirit has gone on. He's now gone to his next level of research outside the body. I doubt that very seriously. Um, all right, so basic sketch of history, essentially what timeline we're dealing with is really, this is relatively new, coming along in the 1950s. But as innovative as, and new as people think that they are, and, and I will say that there are a lot of things in Scientology that it takes a writer of science fiction to actually come up with. This is essentially um, what we'll find out in, in a little bit. Uh, like Gnosticism, like some other religions, meets Star Wars, essentially, is Scientology. It's all it is. It's got a Star Wars skin on it, but in the, inside the lunchbox is, you know, is really the same thing as many other religions, like Gnosticism. And so there are some new, newer thoughts that he kind of brings to it, or newer packages, or newer skins on the outside that he kind of puts on it. But in the end, you find out that it's really not that new at all. It's been around for 2,000 years uh, of people trying to repackage uh, God in, in one way or another. So let's get down to some of the basic beliefs. And I, I don't want to overwhelm you, because some of this is going to sound really weird, okay, on the surface. I get it, but we're going we're gonna to kind of work through it, and let's see if we can understand it. In Scientology, the Thetan, okay, these terms that you're hearing... They're all made up, all right? So don't be like, Satan, I've never heard that word before. Nobody had, all right? <laughs> Science fiction writer, all right? He's good at coming up with terms, okay? So in Scientology, the Satan, essentially what we would know as man's spirit, is a timeless entity which reincarnates in interplanetary life forms. All right, does that... Any of that sound? You, are you hearing any familiar words in there at all? Anything in there that's that's familiar? Somebody? Anybody? Reincarnate. Okay, where have you heard that before? Hinduism. By the way, Scientology is just Hinduism. Spoiler alert. That's all it is. It's it's Star Wars Hinduism. Okay, seriously, or Star Trek, whichever is your preference. Um, essentially, though, what happens is that he's taken Hinduism, which advocates for reincarnation of the spirit or the soul, changed the soul or the spirit to the word Satan and made it interplanetary instead of earthly. 
All right? Done. New religion. Okay. So the Thetan kind of moves around and eventually reaches Earth. And once it reaches Earth, it goes through various life forms until it, and, and, until it, it hits the right body, essentially. And, and the goal of the Thetan, essentially, is to be free from this cycle of birth and rebirth. And anybody who's ever been even remotely close to Hinduism or studied it in any way, even like in a college class or something like that, even if you can dig back into the annals of your mind, maybe you've talked with a Hindu friend or something like that, you will see that is essentially Hinduism. That is, that is the essentials of Hinduism right there. The goal is a freedom from that cycle of being born and reborn and reborn and reborn. And it takes basically the host of the Thetan to achieve that level of escapism from birth and rebirth. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not asking if you agree with it. All right. Nirvana. Essentially, yeah, it's nirvana. Yeah, that is the goal of the Thetan. Again, nothing is brand new, right? The schemes of the devil are the same. Say it one more time. Yeah, I'm not sure if cows get to nirvana. I don't know how that, how really that is kind of explained in Hinduism. But essentially, uh, it yes, it takes a host person, and that person you'll see here in just a second has to essentially release the thetan. That that is the the hope is that the thetan, the spirit, is eventually released uh, through uh, what we're going to see in just a second. So the structure of a man's mind. So you got the Thetan over here. This is his spirit, okay? Now the structure of man's mind is simplified by dividing the mind into three main categories, okay? Three categories of the mind. There's the analytical mind, the reactive mind, and the somatic mind. Soma comes from the Greek word for body. Um... So you've got the analytical mind, the reactive mind, and the somatic mind. That is what you possess by being a man, according to the Scientologists. So the analytical mind, that part of you, is essentially perfect. Okay? It works like a flawless computer. I've never had a flawless computer, though especially if you use Windows, you definitely have never come close to a flawless computer. Uh, but it works something like that kind of thing. It, it is a, a perfect functioning machine, never makes a mistake, and it is essentially the real you, your analytical mind. However, you also have this reactive mind. Those are the two main ones that we're concerned with today. The reactive mind works on a, is, it responds quickly to stimuli in your environment, Okay. So your analytical mind is perfectly fine, and if left alone, uh, it, would be, it, would, it would work flawlessly. You would be a perfect person, except that you've also got this nature about you, which Christians would say, that's not a, that's a, that is the real you, <laughs> is that sin nature. Uh, but the reactive mind works on uh, reacting to stimuli in your environment. So you get frustrated by the person that cuts you off, on the interstate, and you, you know, you yell pleasantries, uh, <laughs> have a good day, 
you're the best person in the world, that kind of thing as you go down. This is you responding to the stimuli. Your reactive mind is responding to the stimuli in your environment. And so as a result of all of that, your reactive mind holds on to these images of terrible things in your past. Okay? Again, remember, self-help meets religion. Think essentially, what could I gain by sitting on the couch of a psychologist, right? Like psychiatrist. This, okay, this is the thing. You're holding on to these repressive memories, your reactive mind is, in your, consci- in your subconsciousness. You're, you may not even be aware of the fact that they're there. In fact, you're not aware that they're there, but they cause the analytical, the perfect you, to be disrupted during the day. It would, it would be working flawlessly. You would never be depressed. You would never be whatever, but if not for this reactive mind and these mental, you know, repressive images that you're holding on to. Uh, and these past experiences that are like mental pictures are called engrams, which are basically the single source of aberrations and psychosomatic ills, okay? So this is straight from scientific literature, so just, or Scientology literature, so. Um, but that's essentially what they are. They're, they're, and they call them engrams, okay? Again, you've never heard that word, nobody had until 1953, or 1950 as it were. And so these are essentially, they're recordings of everything you've seen, everything you've touched, everything you've sensed. It's all recorded in the reactive mind, and these cause that analytical mind, the perfect you, to be disrupted, Okay? Are you tracking with me so far? I'm not asking whether you agree or whether any of that is like meshing with your experience, but you're tracking with me. All right. You can, you can almost hear in some kinds of therapy in the world, you can almost hear some overlap in terminology, at least in there, I think. At least that's the impression so, I can so write. No idea that yeah, like a doc. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, he, Doug says, uh, so their ideal would be something like a Dr. Spock. Uh, just no one who, someone who's not emotional, but just makes, you know, uh, analytical decisions. I think they would say that is what probably the analytical mind looks like. If it were, you know, no, no emotions, free from all of those repressive images that might drag you into, uh, you know, things that are disruptive, not, not, not good for you. Um, okay, so humanity's problem then, the way they explain the problem that we all see, and this is obviously one thing you're going to see that all cults will eventually run into is, hey, the world ain't like what we think it should be, right? Something is wrong with us, and they're providing an, what they think is an answer here, or he is. Humanity's problem is that the reactive mind frequently interrupts the analytical mind. The reactive mind taking over is called an unconscious moment. So, you know, those times that you maybe are depressed or those times where you uh, yell obscenities at your neighbor or something like that, those are unconscious moments. They are times where your uh, reactive mind is interrupting your analytical mind. You would normally be like that if not for these um, engram stimuli that are stored in your unconscious. Okay? So, all right. 
so far we're we're tracking. We we're I don't. I have not read that that would be a negative thing. Okay, I don't. So I don't. I couldn't venture a guess on that. But um, yeah. So you'll find there are lots of things that you get to that you kind of go, huh? Uh, right. And so that maybe are unexplained. But again, I'm not about to go read Dianetics. So you know, just. So yeah. Go ahead. It is, yes. Yes. That's right, yes. Uh, so Timothy says it sounds like Freud. It is repackaged Freud. I mean, it, 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 um, again, uh, so let's maybe add a few more things. Self, self-help and religion, you know, uh, uh, Star Trek meets Hinduism. Uh, Freud, Freud meets Gnosticism. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's all of those things, kind of overlapping all at once. Yeah. But, you know, and, and two, and you, you made the other comment that all of these tend to downplay sin. Uh, well, that's precisely what it is. Because if sin is a, if sin makes you the problem, then it would immediately expose the, the illogic of the system to then present you as the solution, right? So Christianity, we're continually saying, time out, you're the problem. You can't be the solution if you're the problem, right? That, that is essentially, I mean, the basis of the gospel in a nutshell. You are the problem. You can't be your own solution. Well, you have to, as you're saying, downplay sin if you're going to present you as the solution. Does that make sense? So they've got to, essentially. So the solution to the reactive mind uh, interrupting the analytical mind is to rid the reactive mind of all the engrams. So once this is accomplished, the person is called clear. You're clear. You're good. Um, So essentially... The goal, so the clear person has no reaction to the same situation that the the reactive mind would would be in and would, you know, erupt or whatever. Would have no reaction to the same situation because no engram is there to stimulate it. They would not be, you know, depressed or, uh, or various other things that might, you know, they, they might... Uh, that those engrams might cause. So you, you, there's a, I think this might be helpful, uh, maybe or maybe won't. There's a documentary uh, out now that's been out for several years. I watched it about a, maybe a couple years ago called Going Clear. Anybody ever seen this? Going Clear? Uh, yeah, it's a, it, essentially that's what it's referring to. Going Clear is, um, is effectively getting rid of all your your engrams, your repressive experiences that are stored in the in the uh, in the reactive mind. Uh, well, at some point you are clear. You've reached clarity. I, 
as the thinking goes, yes, you are. You have you have become you have become clear. Uh, hey, you got me. I don't. <laughs> I'm just carrying the mail, <laughs> right? <laughs> Say it again. Say it again, Timothy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Baby, baby, they said I'm clear. <laughs> she goes, you ain't clear. <laughs> yeah, clear as mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah she, she will discard your body, that's for sure. <laughs> so that no one ever finds it. Yes. All right, so yeah, join the club. Um, no, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily free of emotion itself. So maybe Dr. Spock is not probably the best example. I don't think it's necessarily emotion. I think it's um, what you might see as like negative emotion. So the Christian's going to call it sin. And we're going to say, and we're going to describe it totally different. And we're going to, and it is totally different than this in some respects. But I think that may be the best way, it, at least in what I've read, that seems to make be the best analogy to what they're talking about by those sort of engrams and those repressive things is like what typically we would refer to as sin or the, the effects of sin or the sinful effects of the fall. So, you know, depression might not be a result of someone's sin, but we would say that won't be there in God's perfect world. That wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. No one was depressed. No one will be depressed in the future. Uh, so it's not necessarily a result of sin, of your sin, but it is a result of sin itself, right? And so I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Not that they're emotionless zombies, but that they've, uh, like Hinduism would say, they've reached a level of higher consciousness where they're sort of, uh, they're, they're unmoved by, uh, or unstirred by negative things. Does that make s some sense, at least? Again, What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so th there is a, uh, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but uh, yeah. Th there, this process, like, uh, so L. Ron Hubbard puts this out and says, you know, this is what it means to be clear and all this kind of stuff. And, and so uh, they, oh, and also we're going to see that, uh, I can't remember if I included it or not, but they have their their uh, their their memories are also perfect. Like that's basically what they say is when you're clear, you have a perfect conscious memory of uh, all things in your past as you know good good events, as it were. So all the bad images that would interrupt the analytical mind, your perfect computer, you've now tapped into and you've stored all those good uh, memories. So there was, there was a, some pushback against L. Ron Hubbard at first because it was like, well, who, who is clear? Have you, is there anybody out here that's clear? And, and so at first it was no, and then there was eventually a woman that he brought forward and said, she's clear. And, uh, and so they start asking her questions about her past, even like a week ago, and she can't recall like different things that, are, that happened in her past and with any kind of accuracy. 
And then, so he goes, well, well it turns out she wasn't clear, uh, you know, <laughs> like, so I kind of explained it away, and then, so there's been a lot of, like, you know, obviously, when you come up with some, I, I think we're all kind of seeing, like, some of this we feel like, this is preposterous, right? This is science fiction. This is stuff of science fiction. Well, of course, when you kind of present that, you're going to be caught in your own snare as, at some point. Matthew? You're, you are unclear. You're unclear right now. I'm unclear. Oh, can you be clear and then unclear? Supposedly, no. But apparently, this person, it's still unclear. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I can't tell you. Uh, that's, that's just the answer, is unclear. Ah. Uh, okay, so... The clear person is on the evolutionary journey to the next stage of man, which is a godlike being called homo novice. So uh, that is essentially the goal. And if you remember, the Thetan's objective is to be free of that cycle of reincarnation. How does the Thetan become free? By the person becoming cleared. You tracking? Okay. Your own help, you getting help, and you progressing through the Scientological levels is how that Thetan then is released from the cycle of reincarnation. You achieve nirvana. It's Hinduism. All over. Um, the method of vanquishing the engrams is through a very expensive process. <laughs> I know you would never have guessed that. Uh, called Dianetic Therapy. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make fun or anything like that. Just, yeah, it is expensive. Uh, Dianetic Therapy. This is accomplished by an auditor who audits the engrams through a form of counseling. That's how they package it. Um, effectively, uh, well, I'll, I'll go to the next one. Dianetic Therapy is that one. I'm going to go to the next one. The pre-clear, that is the person not yet clear, we might call them the unclear, uh, <laughs> or the clear as mud, holds two tin cans connected by wires to the e-meter, while the auditor sits opposite him watching the needle on the e-meter. As the auditor gives commands to the pre-clear person, the needle's fluctuation determines if they have detected a possible engram. The auditor tracks the engram by questioning the preclear with the goal of erasing it. So how do you clear your engrams? You basically go to a Star Trek meets Freud counseling session, essentially. I, I mean, really, that's what it is. And through this... Un, uh, very, very unproven, very untested, and very expensive, again, I reiterate, uh, process of holding these cans, the meter goes up and down. What causes the meter to go up and down? I have no idea, all right? I don't, you can't buy these things. You can't, from what I understand, I don't know who makes them. I don't know if they've got a pedal under the floor that causes the meter to go up and down. I have no idea, but Essentially, they go through, once they detect it, a go through a therapeutic process where, is my understanding, the person who is sitting down holding the cans confesses 
the things that are being brought up. So there's, there's lots of recorded history of therapy sessions of various Scientologists uh, or people that practice Scientology through their therapy sessions, which you can imagine makes it really tough to leave. Right? Just think about that. As a, a person who is sitting down in a therapy session, the people that who, who's, who are benefiting monetarily from your ongoing therapy then have some power over you because they have information about you, right? So there's that part of it, too, that shouldn't be diminished at all, because that is significant. Timothy, do you have something? I thought you were... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a therapy session, right? <laughs> Again, Hinduism and self-help. Okay. So, all of L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology writings... Since Dianetic are considered scripture by the church. So, how, how does a man get saved? That's what we've just kind of seen. And then, what is his, what, what instructs him on his way of life? It is all of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, Scientology writings, since, including Dianetics, but also since then. They're considered scripture by the church. So, Scientology claims its church does not conflict with other religions or religious practices as it clarifies them and brings understanding of the spiritual nature of man. But Hubbard question, did question, by the way, the origin of the Bible. Okay, I have heard and I looked for... That didn't go, did it? I have looked for... The, I looked for this clip. I wanted to include it here. I, 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 it was a clip of, science, of uh, Tom Cruise actually saying to an interviewer, you can be a Scientologist and be a Christian. And so this is the message that is, is coming out. More than anything, and, and I would say even more than like you would hear in a typical like Hindu circle or something like that, would be a syncretism. And, and what you'll find more, than, more often than not is many in the occult, especially when we get to them, Wiccan, Wicca, that, that kind of practice, and various others, they will advocate for syncretism. You're a Christian? That's fine. Be a Christian. But you can also adopt this. The problem is you're getting that information from someone who does not understand the gospel at all. And what they don't understand is that everything you're claiming about the nature of man is diametrically opposed to Christianity. In other words, you have to reject Christianity and the Christian philosophical underpinnings in order to accept it. So I have to actually leave Christianity, true Christianity, to be a Scientologist. But the Scientologist is saying, no, no, you can be a Christian as long as you're a marginal one and you reject all that stuff about Jesus. You can come over here and be a Scientologist and then still go to church, right? So it's a very, that would be the only kind of thing that might be slightly different, but even that has been around for 2,000 years. Many of the Gnostics are advertising syncretism. The Judaizers, syncretism. You can be a Christian. You just got to be a Jew first, right? It's, it's really some of the same kinds of things, but it's a clever ruse. Yeah. Did you have a question? No? Okay. I, I, thought, I thought. I saw a hand, but that's okay. Uh, all right. Scientology 
describes deity in three ways. A supreme being, they will describe uh, God as, they'll just refer to him as God, and gods. So you can be a Scientologist and be a Christian as long as you accept a polytheistic view of gods. That seems antithetical to the Christian message, and it is. But each person attains his own certainty as to who God is and exactly what God means to him. So it kind of meshes with a sort of worldview that says you can kind of make your own path. It, again, <coughs> self-help. Um, so their book on world religion leaves little doubt that the Hindu Brahman, which is sort of the, I guess, the highest uh, supreme being in Hinduism, is closely paralleled with Scientology's understanding of God, or the supreme being. God is spoken of in terms of pantheism and Hinduism. Pantheism would be that God is everything. Everything is God. That's why Hindus will, will worship the cow, why they're vegetarian, historically, is they don't eat the cow because God is the cow. Uh, he is... Every, he is everything, uh, which is different than the Christian idea of omnipresence. Uh, so then, uh, implants are false concepts forced upon a Thetan, and Scientology chalks up Christ as an implant more than a million years ago. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks here. Now we've got to attack Jesus precisely. Your understanding of a need for a savior is an idea that is imposed upon you or as Scientology would call it a false concept so you've got people that come that come to the counselor who think there is an idea of the perfect man and I want to be like that and the the counselor is telling them that is a false concept that has been imposed upon you by society and by thousands of years of, or millions of years of implantation. That is not a reality. So what you're striving for cannot be achieved. Okay? So Christ now is rejected outright. So it calls into question whether or not you can be a Christian and be a Scientologist, doesn't it? if you're required to reject Christ. That <laughs> undermines the term Christian, doesn't it? <laughs> but, oh well. Okay. Uh, so Hubbard casts doubt upon the uniqueness of Jesus as the Messiah. The Church of Scientology teaches that Jesus Christ may have believed in reincarnation. I think I skipped one, didn't I? Sorry. Sometimes this will jump around on me. What is it? It's not there. Just just disappeared altogether. It's a conspiracy. They're out to get us. I think they've sneaked in here. That word is reincarnation on the previous on the one above this one that we're on now. So uh, say that Jesus may have believed in reincarnation. Hubbard attributes Hindu teachings to Jesus. So 
not just undermine Jesus, but then bring Jesus into Hinduism. And what Jesus is really teaching is not Christianity uh, as a whole, but uh, Hinduism, really. It's just Hinduism repackaged all over again. And so he attributes Hindu teachings to Jesus. Christ was a bringer of information. He never announced his sources. He spoke of them as coming from God, but they may, might just as well have come from the God talked about in the Hindu scriptures. It's the same, it's really the same thing, don't you see? You can, you can see how there's, it's almost like there's not one way of undermining Christ. It's like, let's throw the book at, <laughs> at undermining Christ and see which one sticks, you know, uh, either undermine Christ outright, say that you can save yourself, this is a false concept, or perhaps really he's just repackaged Hinduism all over again. All right. Uh, so Hubbard emphasized that salvation is to be free from the endless cycle of birth and rebirth. The way to salvation is to erase engrams through auditing. So again... Your process is through this sort of self-help therapy to release all those negative uh, engrams brought about by the reactive mind so that your analytical mind can be free, so that you essentially reach a state of nirvana and your thetan can escape its temporary housing, shedding the body and moving on to the great science lab in the sky and do its research there, supposedly, like is said of L. Ron Hubbard when he dies. So the end of this basically is, man is naturally good, and he only needs to clear his Thetan, his spirit. Man is naturally good. That will come as a surprise to no one that that is the, that is the answer. So can you be a Christian... And be a Scientologist. Absolutely not. You have to refuse all the central tenets of Christianity in order to be a Scientologist, one or the other. And you will find that with all of them, anyone that advertises syncretism, it doesn't work. Like all other religions and cultic systems outside of the true gospel, Scientology acknowledges a problem inside humanity, but it simultaneously recognizes humanity as its own solution. There's a problem in you, but it's not you. It's in you, but it's not you. Christianity says, it's not only in you, it is you. You are the problem. So I want us to look now again at the Nicene Creed. And, and here's what we're saying about the Nicene Creed, and here's what we're not saying about the Nicene Creed. What we are saying about the Nicene Creed is it is a good summary of the essential tenets of Christian doctrine reiterated 1,700 years ago, essentially. And what we're not saying is that it is Scripture or that it is the only way to describe uh, what we believe, but it is a good way. And I think when you understand what's being spoken of here, you have the essential tenets of Christianity to say to the Scientologist, I don't believe that. That's opposite of what I do believe about Christianity. A couple of them. Okay? I believe in one God. Well, boom. You've already disrupted the polytheism of, um, of Scientology or the pantheism of Scientology. 
the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. There's not a special Thetan out there or anything like that, interplanetary, nothing. God is the maker of all things visible and invisible. One Lord, Jesus Christ. So we believe that Jesus is elevated to the place of Lord, not merely uh, you know, someone repackaging Hinduism. How about the essential message of salvation? For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This both elevates the Bible to the testimony of Christ in His crucifixion and resurrection. It also says that it was for our sake He was crucified. In other words, there is something wrong with us that he died for, as a penalty for our sin. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. Or how about at the end here? I confess one baptism. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Not to clear Thetans. Not to, you know, be free or reach nirvana or any of that. We had a debt to God Almighty that Christ paid for us. And for His death, His death is the reason that we have forgiveness of sin. And then what happens at, after that? Because He rose again, what do I look forward to? It says, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We're not talking about progressing to nirvana, not escaping reincarnation, not anything like that. I die, and what I look forward to is the resurrection of the dead. When Christ comes again, and my body comes up out of the grave at His call, and reunite body and soul, and life in the world to come under Christ as King. Questions? Uh, Timothy, then Doug. Yes! His life provides us righteousness. Right. Right. The indwelling Holy Spirit. I mean, really, you could go through that creed, and probably every statement of that creed you could highlight as opposite of what we just heard in Scientology, for sure. Absolutely. Does. Right. When they say born, they don't mean through a birth canal. Uh, it would essentially mean um, from the Father. The same way we would say from the Father. Right, that's why it says before all ages. This is not saying that, uh, that he's not eternal God. Essentially, all of those phrases are meant to, meant to sum up what we are saying about Christ. That he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. 
So if at the end of that, at the end of that, you go, born of the Father before all ages means he's made from the Father. As we would say, someone is born today. They would say, no, we're saying he's begotten, not made. That is not what we mean by that statement. So essentially, what I think the you know, fourth century uh, Christians are attempting to do is to say there are many things that are said about Jesus. He is sent from the Father. He is from the Father. Um, he is submitting. Yeah, he is, okay, but even in, even in pre-incarnate Christ, he's still submitting to the will of the Father, right? which is inherent in the terms Father and Son. He's submitting to the will of the Father. So there's a, there's a way you have to describe that in human language that in the end doesn't make him made materially. And so how do you do that? Well, it's inevitably going to take more than one term. And you're going to have to use them all together. And essentially that's what you've got in this run. Only begotten Son of God. That means born of the Father before all ages. So not born like through the birth canal, but born before all ages. In other words, from the Father before all ages. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. So the only way we can explain what this means is to give all the terms and, and so that you can kind of wrap your head around the concept itself. Right? So it's, if you, at the end of that, you kind of go, well, then they're saying he was made by God. And that's not what we believe. That's not what they're saying. We don't they, believe that. This is now about the Nicene Creed. We'll talk about that later. That's not a heretic. But the essence of God is never changed. Right. Except for the fact that the second person of the Trinity is the essence of the Trinity. When he was prior to the incarnation, took on flesh. Yes. So then we appear as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Sure. And then in the New Testament, after the incarnation, he becomes a new creature. Now he's Right. So the essence of God does change at that point. In a sense, because the second person is If you go back to uh, God, uh, there was never a time in eternity past where God was not the way he was. He never was bad. But the Trinity was always bad. It was right. like the two persons and one also Jesus and Yes. But there was a, a change in the essence of God when Jesus became one because now he's taken on he's still what he was, but now he's also Yes. So we agree. Yeah, it sounds like you agree with the Nicene Creed. Go ahead. <laughs> Same thing. Yep. Yep. Right. The tricks haven't changed since the Garden of Eden. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yes. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, so the question is about therapy, and I'm going to just touch on this briefly because I do want to come back to this at some point, and I'm not sure exactly how, whether in this course or we'll do another one later on about it, but um, therapy is, a, is a, uh, a growing means of salvation now in our culture. Uh, it's not uncommon to find uh, even many Christians going to therapy, and there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with seeing a therapist or talking with somebody about uh, issues, especially in, in, you know, regards to uh, problems that you have and things like that. Um, what I always counsel people to do is uh, a couple of things. First, uh, sit down with a pastor first. Um, and the reason for that is you, th- the pastor is responsible for the care of your soul and the doctrine that you are hearing. Um, a, whether you realize it or not, you are giving the privileges of pastoral leadership to a counselor. They are leading you pastorally. Okay? So, if you're a member of a church, which obviously I would say you need to be, you're, what you're saying in membership is that the the pastor of the church, the pastors, the elders of the church, are the shepherds of my, my soul here on earth. So I want them to have oversight over what I'm talking with the counselor about. I don't want there to be something that, that I'm telling the counselor that they need to know that the pastors of the church don't need to know. Um, so that's one thing. That, that for sure helps to guard, safeguard, what you are hearing from the counselor. I realize this is not enough time, and I could be stepping off into it right now for a lot of emails. But The same thing. So I, I, would, I would say, uh, you know, I, and I'm not trying to disparage all forms of counseling. Sometimes there are people that are, are very gifted at particular, um, you know, patterns of counseling and, and can recognize things that even the pastor can't. I'm not saying that, you know, the pastor has all rights and authorities and all those kinds of things. It's just that uh, the pastor needs, the pastors of the church need to be brought in to that, to the counseling session and kind of go, Okay, this is what you're hearing. They're able to also be another sounding board. Bring in other members of the church, by the way. Other people that are your brothers and sisters who care about you, bring them into the process as well. And that doesn't mean you have to bring in everybody. It doesn't mean you have to sit down and tell your whole small group or anything like that. But people that you trust inside the church to come in with you and say, okay, here's what we're talking about. Here's what I'm hearing. They can be the ones that step in and say, that's not true. That is not the gospel at all. That is self-help repackaged. So in every way, your church, pastors and members, are there to safeguard our understanding of the gospel. That's, that's our purpose. That's what we do together, is to tell you when you're believing a lie, and when you can't see it yourself. And sometimes you're going to be able to see it in the counseling office. You're going to go, I, I, I think that's not true. And, but your brothers and sisters are there to help you in that same process. So I wanna, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, 
we can talk about that a lot later. If you're tempted to just pound the keyboard and send me an email, why don't you just come talk to me instead? All right, uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're grateful uh, for your word, and we're grateful for the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to believe it, help us to recognize it, help us to know it, help us to also recognize falsehood when we see it. I pray that you would build in our minds that kind of um, internal framework of being able to understand what is falsehood and being able to separate truth from falsehood. Truth is revealed in your word, uh, we pray, would, would carry the day for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.